0: host John Kingston, and I want to thank you for tuning in. I think we're getting up to the point where we are in sight of having done about 150 podcasts, and my colleague Tim Dooner tells me the vast majority of podcasts don't even make it to 10. So I'm grateful to my listeners, and I just want you to know that I'm going to skedaddle for a month so we won't be back until August. I didn't set out to do three podcasts based on people from the Gartner Supply Chain Symposium that I attended in Orlando last month. But there was just so much compelling stuff from there that, yes, I've got another guest from that meeting with me today. He's Craig Moore with Corber. Actually, it's pronounced Kerber. Kind of looks like it's spelled Corber. Kerber used to be known as High Jump, and his company provides software solutions that are heavily used in one of the most important parts of the supply chain, the warehouse. He'll be here to talk about his little corner of the world. Let's talk about diesel. It is the worst over for now? It really kind of looks like it. Let's review some statistics here. As I record this, we just wrapped up trading in diesel for June. It was the first month that the price of ultra-low sulfur diesel at the end of the month was less than it was at the start of the month since November. ULSD settled Thursday, June 30th at just under $3.90 per gallon. That's down about 10 cents from where it settled on the final day of May. And the settlement Thursday was the first time it settled under $4 since May 26th. What is driving these moves? We can look to the most recently the most recent weekly statistical report from the Energy Information Administration to give us an idea. I don't want to shower the listeners with too many numbers because they are tough to follow when you're listening rather than looking, but here are a few key ones. We've talked before about reporting inventories in terms of days cover. That's the number you get when you take the total amount of inventories, you divide it by consumption, and you get the number of days of consumption that could be fulfilled just by inventories. The Energy Information Administration doesn't do statistics for diesel specifically, but it does do them for a product, for a category called, oil, called distillates, and that's all distillates except jet fuel. Jet fuel is in its own category. So the distillates category includes things like heating oil, but it is mostly diesel. In the most recent weekly report for distillates, stocks were over 30 days, so days cover, were over 30 days for the first time since the start of the year. And at the start of the year, you'd expect distillate inventories to be really high because you need them for heating oil. So getting over 30 days in the middle of July, I was going to say the middle of July, but it's really the end of June, is a big deal. East Coast inventories were a huge issue for the diesel market just a few weeks ago. They were sitting at low levels that we hadn't really seen since ultra-low sulfur diesel became the benchmark specification for the diesel market. We've tacked on in inventories more than 50% in just a few weeks. That also is a big deal. U.S. refineries are running at about 95% capacity. That's about as close to full as you can get without without creating mechanical problems. So refiners are stepping up and making more product. One problem, that 95% is against a smaller capacity base than in prior years as several refineries have closed. So it's a strong rate, but it is against a smaller base. Here's another reason why diesel is falling. Demand appears to be cratering as well. Okay, it's just one week, so maybe it doesn't mean anything. But the EIA has a category called product supplied, which is basically demand. The most recent number is 3.57 million barrels per day of distillate. That's the second lowest number this year, and it's even lower for the third week of June than two years ago when you were just a few months after the start of the pandemic. One-week numbers can move pretty significantly just a week later. So we don't know if what was just reported was a blip or a trend toward lower demand. We will have to wait and see the next, the next week's numbers to find out. And yes, it is frustrating to consumers that they aren't seeing these lower prices show up yet at the pump. On the way down, retailers always try to hang on to their prices as long as they can. And remember, it is retail owners who are making those prices. It is not oil companies who set whole pri- wholesale prices that absolutely do move with the ships and commodity markets, so it is frustrating, but there is relief coming. If the relief is because the economy is weakening and demand is dropping, that clearly is a double-edged sword. One commodity that is absolutely plummeting is copper, and the red metal has long been known as Dr. Copper, because its key role in construction and manufacturing is a good sign of weakening industrial demand. It all points, all these numbers that I've reviewed here, point to the possibility that we've seen the worst for now in terms of high diesel prices. But if you're a trucker, it's also possible we're also on the brink of a more extreme slowdown. And diesel prices, as well as things like copper, are reflecting that. Ask yourself this, would you rather have a rip-roaring freight market and $6 diesel, or a slower freight market and diesel down toward $5? That might be your choice. Time to move on now to our guest of the week. You know, it's been three weeks, I guess, but I'm still thinking a lot about the Gartner Supply Chain Conference that I attended in Orlando a few weeks ago. This is the third consecutive Drilling Deep where I'm talking to somebody who was there, including one interview I did two weeks ago where I did it actually from the floor of the big meeting. Craig Moore is this week's guest, and no, we aren't in Orlando anymore, but he did present at the meeting, and he was there with about 2,700 other delegates who run the nation's you know, thousands, millions, I don't even know how to count them, thousands of company supply chains, looking over the software that was on display, talking about what the last few years have been, been about as supply chains became front and center in the economy and wondering what's next. Craig is the vice president of sales at Kerber in North America. It had been known as High Jump up until 2020, and he's joining me today on Drilling Deep. Craig, uh, we actually, our paths did not cross in Orlando, but I know you were there.
1: I was there. Yeah, it was a great event. It was uh, great to finally be back together live and in person.
0: Right. So why don't you first talk about your company a little bit? Um, You can give it a much better description than I can.
1: Oh, John, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, I've been here with the organization since 2011, so I would uh, classify myself an original high jumper, uh, now Kerber Supply Chain. And we are an organization which has focused on supply chain execution. And there are quite a few solutions in our portfolio today that make up what really result in supply chain execution. But fundamentally, you can think about it. Warehouse management software is a really good place to start. And then there are a lot of other supporting and complementary solutions that make up our portfolio of products where that's what we address in the market.
0: Right. But primarily, your products are uh, are to manage operations in a warehouse, whether it's an independent warehouse or a company warehouse.
1: Uh, Warehouse operations are absolutely an important part of that. Uh, So we consider that the four walls, if you will, of the operation. And we have solutions which extend beyond that as well. But it's primarily throughout that supply chain network where product needs to be fulfilled, needs to be moved, right, need to have visibility to it, falls into that categorization of supply chain execution. Yes, you're right, John.
0: All right, we're going to come back to that in a minute because I, whenever I talk uh, to people about the supply chain, I like to very much do kind of an ankle bone connected to the shin bone type of thing and connect mm-hmm. with everything. So, but let's let's talk first about Orlando. As I said, I still I, I really enjoyed the meeting. It was the first kind of first time I'd been to anything like that. I'm sure you had dozens and dozens of conversations. These are people who, quite frankly, in a lot of cases, have been to hell and back because their supply chains were so disrupted uh, during the pandemic. Uh, what were some of the main themes you heard about? Well, the past we know what the past was like, but about the future,
1: yeah. Lessons learned were a lot of the topics of conversation, John. You know, there is a realization now of really what the definitions of agility and resilience are within supply chains. So a lot of conversation around that. You know, there was an element that was already underway before the pandemic struck us of the growth of e-commerce and the transition from traditional retail models into, you know, a much more individual consumer driven fulfillment mechanism that we see in supply chains today. That e-commerce model was really exacerbated by the pandemic. So there's a lot of conversation around that. And as that has continued to grow and the growth was already underway, it was very organic. And then you had this, this catalyst, which pushed it even further with the pandemic, starts to bring to surface a lot of other challenges that supply chains are facing today. So it heard a lot of those conversational points around the challenges that organizations are dealing with, with, for example, product returns in an e-commerce model, uh, the challenges of labor and the complexity of technology and the number of different solutions that are in the marketplace today. And there was also, you know, very interestingly, supply chains are starting to pay attention to um, ESG, right, which is environmental, social, and governments initiatives. So those non-financial factors, which play the part of individuals really looking and analyzing the material risks and growth opportunities within organizations, supply chains have become a big part of that because they're needing to account for their practices and the impacts they're having in those areas of ESG. And I found that to be an interesting conversational point as well yeah you can imagine that because how many different components are there
0: to a good supply chain you know, dozens, hundreds, whatever, and you can imagine something where some some part of this this tightly drawn um, supply chain goes off the rails because some company is just poorly run or whatever maybe for reasons that you didn't know to know previously when maybe you didn't even know that, that you were in the supply that they were in your supply chain, and mm-hmm. suddenly they go off the rails under ESG principles, and you're that left holding the bag.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different elements that got exposed. And I think that's probably one of the key talking points that came out of the conference is organizations' realization that they had exposure in their supply chain, or even worse, they had lack of visibility. And when the pandemic struck, and we're using that as a use case here, it exposed a lot of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities within supply chains. And so organizations were looking at a lot of their different processes and looking to the future to think, okay, there will be a next time, something will happen. How do we make sure we're in a good place to be able to respond to that and have tighter controls and, really importantly, visibility into what's happening in our supply chains?
0: Yeah, because people can complain about the whole ESG issue and um, the, government, the the fact that it's making its way into their operations in many ways, but it is not going away. That's for sure.
1: No. No, it's going to be a point of focus for investors in the future. Absolutely, John.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the warehouse market, though. One thing that's come out of the past couple of months is this concern that maybe it's peaked. I mean, it just seemed to be so red hot before. You must have a front row seat to the warehouse market, given what your software company does. I know it seems to me one of the more significant news stories we've had over the last two or three months is that Amazon is now starting to sublet some of all that space that it took for its operations. Are you seeing that kind of softening from your perspective?
1: I'm not. uh, I would argue that it's becoming more strategic and that it's becoming even more critical. I can't speak directly to everything Amazon did. I can speak to what I read. And I think it's not unlike what we saw in the housing market, right? There was a panic mentality that went in that drove a little bit of a frenzy about securing some of that square footage. And we saw that in the warehouse market. And we know some organizations certainly went all in, made sure they had more than enough space. I think we're seeing a little bit of that trickle back down, the release of that back into the market, saying, okay, we're okay, we have our coverage. But what I see at the enterprise level and even in the SMB marketplace is that um, organizations are still very strategically focused, I would say more than ever now, on making sure they have the, the right space for them and that they're optimizing the warehouse locations they do have.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little more about what your company does. Uh, again, I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated by, I, I'm, I'm more fascinated by this field than I ever was after going to the Gartner meeting. Because you, you walk along the floor of the exhibition hall and there's a lot of companies whose products mostly do the same thing. They don't all do exactly the same thing, but there's a core set of capabilities that if you're Mm -hmm. going to be in the visibility space, your software has to do. Mm -hmm. In your case, I'd say two things. Number one, how do you differentiate yourselves? And when you're, are you up competing against the big visibility players like a four kites? Do they just simply not have the warehouse capabilities that your product brings to it? It's, is it's almost like a company like that. they, They, I won't say they go right up to the warehouse door, but then, once they get into the warehouse door, a company like yourselves, which tends to specialize in it, do they have? Do you have some features that they just simply can't match?
1: I, I think it's it's a matter of the fact that when you, speaking of the Gartner event, right, we'll use them. In this example, you know they they publish a a leader quadrant for warehouse management solutions, and Kerber is is a leader, you know, in that quadrant. Uh, That's what we do in terms of our focus around warehouse management solutions, and it's a very core component to who we are as an organization. You mentioned some of those visibility platforms. They've emerged out of necessity in the market, um, especially with product that's in motion, um, in a network somewhere being transported, where organizations can look out into their supply chains and, and look at the flow of goods coming in and monitor for disruptions, as an example. Once it gets to a warehouse, once it gets to that location, uh, this is really a place where Kerber, from a WMS perspective, is now that system of record for the receipt of all those goods, the management of those goods within a facility, and then, of course, the coordination of all that activity that happens within that operation. And at Kerber Supply Chain, that extends beyond just warehouse management software, a key element to that. Would be the trend that we see in the ongoing addition of automation solutions into facilities now. And Kerber provides warehouse control software solutions, as an example, which help to augment what we're doing in the realm of WMS. And then there are other complementary solutions that provide, uh, call it motivation, um, visibility and other aspects operationally that help to support those warehouse facilities and distribution centers. So it's a portfolio that that focuses on those solutions of managing all of that operationally um, at the warehouse or DC level within uh, enterprises today.
0: Well, let's clarify the WMS stands for Warehouse Management System. And yep. let's, let's talk about automation. Uh, you know, I keep seeing videos of some of the automation in warehouses, and it's really stunning uh, pretty amazing. Uh, how fast is that needle moving? Is, is this just going apace? And I, I would imagine the push is coming from the warehouse owners, but where's the technology from? Where's, where are all these uh, developers who are building these incredible systems? You
1: know, I'm going to address one piece of that question you asked. You bring up a good point. Uh, the push is a large part of the push today Actually, goes back to one of the challenges that we opened with when we talked about the themes that were coming out of the recent Gartner Conference, which is the labor challenge. Good automation needs to be considered in a format where it's augmenting the workforce. Finding the workforce today is becoming ever more challenging, especially in the warehouse operation space. The national average for turnover within organizations in the United States is 3.6%. But if you isolate the warehouse operational space, that turnover rate is 37%. It's 10 times the national average. Warehouse operations are absolutely looking at ways that they can augment their workforce with the addition of automation. And good automation is going to run in a way that that's exactly what it's doing. It's supporting that workforce and driving to, efficiencies.
0: Let me just jump in here. I write the uh, w- monthly story, monthly article that we do on the, uh, uh, the Bureau of Labor... Bureau of Labor Statistics employment report, not you know more, more colloquially yeah. as the unemployment report. And yeah. the, the warehouse sector, which is its own statistic, has been adding workers like crazy. So it's really impressive when you think they've been adding workers like crazy, even as they're dealing with a 37 percent turnover rate.
1: Part of the challenge, right? Because when you look at the addition of those workers, uh, you have to wonder, are they getting ahead or are they just trying to stay even? And I know in many instances with organizations that I talk to, they're falling behind um, because of the loss of that warehouse workforce. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. I mean, it is a repetitive type of an environment. Um, So that's where a lot of that automation consideration is coming in now, is how can we make the workplace more motivational? How can we help the worker to be supported through the use of technology that makes their job easier? And at the end of the day, helps them operationally become more efficient. So, we absolutely see the growth. In fact, I know that in 2019, the market for automation technology was at about 29 billion in the United States. It's projected to be 48 billion in 2023. So, it is growing. There is more adoption of it. And what's interesting about that is that level of automation, there's a very high ceiling there for organizations which, as of yet, haven't even adopted some automation strategies. So, the future growth potential for the introduction of automation into operations is tremendous. Yeah,
0: that that goes to, I mean, you kind of almost kind of led into my next point. Uh, For those of people who haven't been in a warehouse lately, I'm sure you've been in many of late. Mm -hmm. You know, we tend to think of the ones we see in videos, which are these incredibly clean, modern facilities. You've seen all the best new technology, but I'm sure Mm -hmm. warehouses run the gamut from A to Z. Last week on Drilling Deep, we had a woman uh, named Karen Evanoff from QSC who made a presentation. I don't know if you saw it because there was so much going on in Orlando, but she made a presentation about her company's uh, adoption of cloud-based software. And she freely admitted that prior to that, they were like an Excel-based supply chain. They were really antiquated. And Mm -hmm. she talked about the the changes she'd made. Do you find the same thing in warehouses as some of them are absolutely on the cutting edge of what's out there and, and others are just lagging so far behind in technology?
1: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Karen Evanoff's presentation. I actually went to it and uh, Karen is a professional colleague of mine. And so I was curious to hear a little more about her experience in that area. Yeah, cloud adoption, certainly um, tremendously high right now. And that's a driver for us, by the way, at Kerber Supply Chain. We are a cloud first organization and are serving up our solutions that way. And not just our warehouse management software, but also the complementary solutions, warehouse control, and many of the other uh, automation elements which we're introducing into supply chains today. And at Kerber, one of those elements that we see tremendous traction with, and the market is seeing it as well, is autonomous mobile robotics. That's a great example of what you talk about when you talk about, you know, you see a video of a nice-looking facility. Um, there are, there's the introduction at some level with organizations where they can begin to adopt autonomous mobile robotics with a lot more flexibility and repurposing within their operations to begin to address some of their automation challenges. That's just one example.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, let me ask you, does is, is your company develop the software that runs some of those robotics or is that just happening to be going alongside
1: that? So we don't develop the software that runs it, although we can control it with our warehouse control software. Um, the interesting thing about the robotics sector is that there are so many AMR choices autonomous mobile robotics to call out the the acronym and they all have different use cases and they're great in some areas and other AMRs are better in other areas and so you have to have that that subject matter expertise to understand the incorporation of AMR technology into business process flows within organizations and that is absolutely an area that kerber supply chain creates a distinguishing separation for itself in supply chain execution delivery, because we are truly a process-driven organization, and we look at that as the way that you create a more future-proof scenario where you know that your business processes will need to change inevitably over time because of a lot of different influences. Go back to the pandemic that we talked about in the beginning of our conversation, and that is an, that's a, a tremendous example of that. And what Kerber supply chain does really well.
0: Let's go back to the point we were starting to talk about it. We were talking about some warehouses being uh, very modern and adopting all yeah. the technology and others being you know, just w- way behind the curve. Talk yeah. about those other ones because, as I said, this is one of the reasons, and I think you probably felt it too. The kind of the kind of presentation that Karen made at uh, Gartner was just so interesting because not too many companies are willing to stand up and say, you know, we were hopeless. We were actually and literally say that. Yeah. Say, you know, we had we had really antiquated hopeless technology. You run into that. What's your sales pitch to them, and where are the resistance points?
1: You know, it's interesting with what we've gone through in the recent past. I think that from a sales pitch perspective, prospects and customers today are have a a much more uh, distinct realization of what their challenge is, because visibility is a big piece of that. When you start talking about supply chain digitization, the movement away from manual processes and what organizations thought that they could do on Excel spreadsheets has really, quite honestly, it's slapped them in the face. And they realize that it's not just a warehouse. It's an opportunity to drive efficiency and revenue gains within an organization when it's managed correctly. And what's driving a lot of the considerations today in these decision-making processes comes at the highest levels of business, C-level, board of directors who are looking down at warehouse and supply chain operations with the recognition we have to get this right and we have to drive efficiency. And so once you've accomplished that realization, then the, the, the... overall sales strategy and approach becomes uh, very direct because there's that recognition. Look, we need the fundamentals, at least, of a warehouse management system. And then, of course, how do we grow our strategy upward from there? How do we introduce continuous process improvement and really keep driving this in our supply chain operations?
0: I've only got time for one question, so I'm going to give you kind of two choices to answer it. Uh, sure. What you, is the next big development either in software, warehouse management software like yours, or what's mm-hmm. the next big development in warehouses, period?
1: Um, I'm going to answer your one question with two points, and I'll I'll condense it here for you. I think there's some very compelling and interesting things to come in a couple of areas. So we think about the labor challenge and the fact that you've got a workforce that you wanna motivate and that may be dealing with mundane, repetitive tasks. And the technology of gamification is one that I'm very excited to see what happens in the market when you introduce gamification strategies into warehouse operations. And when I say gamification, you know, what I'm talking about is a solution to increase motivation by offer, offering incremental goal setting and virtual incentive capabilities ongoing feedback and tips throughout the day. It's a very interactive user interface with the warehouse employee to really keep them engaged within their activity. And then another thing that I think is very important, we're talking about the myriad of solutions that are being introduced as technology options within supply chain, and the initiatives around digital twin, which is facility simulation and modeling. That's also another really key one that can help organizations to address early on I know I need to make some decisions. What was, what does it look like if I do this? And so that ability to model that out um, is something also that Kerber supply chain is involved in that market. And we know that that is leading to a lot more confidence in decision making about introducing automation, addressing the change in business processes and just overall supply chain operational strategies.
0: Well, wow, there's a lot going on there and uh, we will see you next year at Gartner. I, I've already got it on my calendar uh, for next year. And uh, it's it's a fascinating field and kind of wrapping up this little hat trick of supply chain related podcast here on Drilling Deep. And we want to thank today's guest. He's Craig Moore. He's Kerber's vice president of sales for North America. Uh, and uh, Craig, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for
1: having me. I appreciate
0: the opportunity. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the FreightCast family of podcasts from FreightWaves. You can find us on all leading podcast platforms. And my little announcement is that I'm taking July off and Drilling Deep will return in early August. So, uh, Craig, uh, Kerber's uh, uh, Kerber's podcast here is going to sit on the top of the pile for another four to five weeks. So congratulations, I guess, is is in order. Thank you, John. Anyway, so I've been your host, John Kingston, and it's going to be a while, but please do join us again.